The traveling salesman problem is a classic challenge of finding the shortest and most efficient route for a person to take given a list of destinations. This is one of many real-world optimization problems that companies encounter. How should they schedule product distribution or promote product bundles or define sales territories? The answers to these questions constantly change because business environments constantly change. The company Nextmove helps solve these problems with production-ready, commercial tools for solving optimization problems and simulating models with real company data. Their tool, Hop, encodes optimization strategies for dynamic environments. Hop can be deployed to routing, scheduling, and assignment problems in multiple industries like on-demand delivery, e-commerce, and IT infrastructure management. The tool Dash is a commercial-grade simulation engine that provides an environment to A-B test models online with real data. In this episode, we talked to Carolyn Mooney, CEO at Nextmove. Carolyn was previously a lead systems engineer at Grubhub and a decision system analyst at Zoomer before that. We discuss optimization problems throughout different industries, machine learning strategies, and go into detail about how Nextmove helps companies become more profitable and efficient. A few announcements before we get started. One, if you like Clubhouse, subscribe to the Club for Software Daily on Clubhouse. It's just Software Daily, and we'll be doing some interesting Clubhouse sessions within the next few weeks. Uh, and two, if you are looking for a job, we are hiring a variety of roles. We're looking for a social media manager. We're looking for a graphic designer. And we're looking for writers. If you are interested in contributing content to Software Engineering Daily, or even if you're a podcaster and you're curious about how to get involved, we are looking for people with interesting backgrounds who can contribute to Software Engineering Daily. Uh, again, mostly we're looking for social media help and design help, but if you're a writer or a podcaster, we'd also love to hear from you. You can send me an email with your resume, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. That's jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. Carolyn, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for having me. You work on Nextmove, and I'd like to get into what that is, but first I'd like to talk about logistics in general. Sure. You and your your co-founder both worked at Grubhub, and these food delivery companies have a lot of logistical problems. Can you give me some of the, the general logistical problems that you have to solve in a food delivery business? Absolutely. So my background is actually in systems engineering, so it's thinking about how you combine a lot of different actors in your system and you know what pieces of automation you have to put in place to manage that really efficiently. And so when we were at Grubhub, we worked basically on all things fulfillment, so automating fulfillment at, at Grubhub. And basically what that meant is everywhere in the life cycle of an order or even a life cycle of the driver, there were automation pieces. So there was forecasting and scheduling. You know, that was how do you forecast demand and then how do you pick the best blocks to schedule drivers in so that you cover that demand really efficiently. In the meal delivery space, you're serving restaurants, right? So you have to make sure you have enough drivers to you know, give them reasonable SLAs in addition to giving good delivery times to your, your diners. So that was really important. Uh, we also worked on automated dispatch. So that's the whole space around the, the Ubers and Lyfts of the world. They're doing this in mobility. We were doing it for, for meal delivery where you have obviously a live set of drivers and you have a rolling set of you know diners that are coming into your system and saying, I want an order. Well, you need to figure out who goes with what, 
And in what order do you actually service those pickups and drop offs? Because you're stopping at restaurants and then obviously making deliveries after that. And then a little bit higher than that, it was an understanding of in real time. So we did this like management of supply and demand for the forecasting and scheduling portion. But then real world is never exactly as you plan it to be. <laughs> so there was also the, the aspect of real time supply demand management, which we called like kind of market management at, at Grubhub. And then finally, there was ETAs, like how do you decide, you know, how and when to surface ETAs and, you know, at what points in the, the order life cycle. So we kind of had our hands in all of those various problems under the broader kind of umbrella, which we call decision engineering. So how to automate decisions, how to make them look like code and how to ship them efficiently in your in your stack. Did you say how to make them look like code? Yeah, yeah. So a lot of kind of what we built next move around was this concept around decision engineering and specifically like kind of decision science. And so like those are two kind of newish terms, I would say, that we started playing around with. But a lot of times what you'll see is like these these models or algorithms, right? They are something that you might go off and research and then you're trying to pull that all of that rich mathematical research, um, a lot of times done by operations researchers or data, data scientists, and you're trying to pull that into your software stack. Sometimes that doesn't look and feel like other parts and other components of your software stack. So if you think about like, you know, what are good practices in software in general, maybe like repeatability, testability, scalability, things like that, those don't often get serviced in the algorithm space. So, you know, there was this kind of divide between, hey, I go off and I research, you know, a really good mathematical algorithm, but how do I put that, how do I make it look like the rest of my, my stack and like, and make it, make sure it's following coding best practices. So this sounds like a very tough problem to build a general software solution for. Like if you're trying to have a piece of software that models the logistics of a food delivery business, but maybe can also be used for like a ride sharing business or any of these kinds of businesses where there's a lot of uh, actors involved, maybe a, a fulfillment business. I'm just curious, like how you generalize those kind that that problem set to a software tool that can be useful for all these different use cases. Sure. So essentially what we've done, and I would say in general, we're building out what we call the decision stack. So there's kind of layers to this decision stack. And the first layer, I would say at the at the base is really our core. And that core is both optimization and simulation. So at a very high level, optimization can be used to automate decisions and, you know, pick the best scenario from a bunch of different, you know, permuted scenarios uh, for your business based on your own KPIs. And then simulation allows you to do efficient testing. And so on top of that, what we've built is a set of engines. And so we kind of think about this in layers. So our set of engines is really problem-specific formulations. And so they are algorithms that are common to maybe logistics or algorithms that are common to finance or algorithms that are common to you know scheduling or something like that. So what we have there is, for an example, is like a VRP. So that's a vehicle routing problem. And a vehicle routing problem is common across any optimizer framework that you look at. Uh, I would say it's one of the most common that people are familiar with. But a vehicle routing problem can actually apply to many different applications. So that basically vehicle routing problem says I have a bunch of drivers or a bunch of vehicles and I have a bunch of requests and I need to service them in the most efficient way. That means batching them together and assigning them to a driver and then routing them for the ordering of pickups and drop offs. Obviously, that relates to rideshare, right? Because rideshare does that exact problem. That also relates to things like meal delivery. 
It also relates to sourcing. If you think about, hey, I want to source, you know, maybe different agriculture and bring it back to a distribution center. It also goes to, you know, package delivery. You can think of UPS, FedEx, um, anybody that's doing like e-commerce delivery, that sort of thing. So all of these problems kind of have these general formulations. And what we've done is we've put kind of like an abstraction layer over that that says like you can use these formulations for a variety of applications and define your schema, define you know where you want to run, whether that's serverless or command line or Docker or what have you, and it allows you to ship those things really easily. And so really what we're trying to do is give common patterns uh, across multiple optimization and simulation paradigms, if that makes sense. It does. So can you walk me through an example, let's say like a food delivery business. Tell me how and why a food delivery business would use your software. Sure. So typically when you get, I would say, when you start to work on these problems, what you realize is very quickly uh, the combinations or the the scenarios that you can possibly generate for one plan. So a a meal delivery service is typically going to plan iteratively right, over the course of a day because they don't know the new demand that's coming in. You and me as, as users, we could kind of top on and order our own food whenever we want. And so in that sense, it's like a real-time delivery problem. And so typically what you'll see is that over the course of a day, a meal delivery system will run, I don't know, maybe every 30 seconds, every two minutes, somewhere in that range, and take in the current state of the world. And so for our systems, we define that state in just JSON format. And that's pretty typical for these companies that are working in like microservice land, kind of like everything is, you know, talking JSON and JSON out. So by defining that state in JSON, we can actually then pass it into one of our engines. So our engines, like I was saying, like we have a vehicle routing problem engine, which is what I would use for that meal delivery space. And that is what we call our fleet engine. And what that does is it allows you to set different constraints on your system. And we think about constraints as you know ways your operations limits itself. <laughs> so that could be things like your drivers have you know a vehicle capacity that they can't exceed at any time during their route, or they have to you know deliver certain certain stops or certain packages at a certain time. So there's time windows associated, or there's an ordering of things that have to happen. So in meal delivery, you have to pick up food before you can drop it off. So those stops have to be connected and made make sure that you order them in that order, right? The pickup happens before a drop off. So we call that precedence. And so there's these different pieces of that system that you can use our off the shelf kind of like constraints for and configure based on your data. So the interesting part with the customization is I've, I've never seen two delivery providers in any sector treat their delivery the same way. And what I mean by that is they think about different KPIs, they think about different constraints, and they think about different combinations of, of the two. And so what we allow that's a little bit different, I would say, than other maybe routing APIs is we allowed you we allow you to customize the KPIs that you care about minimizing or maximizing. So let's just say you think about your entire delivery world in dollars. <laughs> like you have everything kind of like scoped out so you know exactly how much a mile costs you, you know exactly how much waiting costs you, you know exactly how much all this costs you. You could actually make your value function for the optimizer in dollars based on the KPIs that that are inherent to your business. And really what's happening in that fleet engine is that at the end of the day, it's taking that initial state that you have and it's generating a whole bunch of different scenarios. And under the covers, what an optimizer really is, is a search mechanism, right? So it's it's the ability to both generate new plans and then search those plans really, really fast to find the best one um, in the time you have. And so that's that's basically how, how somebody would use us is they would take like our fleet's engine off the shelf, they would configure their specific JSON input to, to match into that fleet, that fleet structure. 
And then they would layer on whatever constraints are important to their business and whatever value function they care about. How is this so... I still don't understand how this is so generalizable because if I'm trying to optimize my food delivery model, it seems like I'm going to need data from a really wide variety of sources. Like I would need to have data from, you know, the, my food delivery business in Austin and my food delivery business in San Francisco and my food delivery business in New York. And there's going to be different optimizations that you might make based on the city, right? Like, like you might have, you might want to have different plans for different cities. So is there a necessity of like, having a set of sample data in order to to actually build build these models and test them properly? Definitely. So one of the things that we focus on was the ability to one unit test your model. So a lot of other optimization frameworks, you can't actually unit test some of these individual constraints easily. And so by having the ability to kind of like unit test, uh, that makes it a lot easier to have confidence that you, like some of those are being satisfied. The other thing that a few of our users are already doing is kind of working this into their CI framework. So they'll have a set of inputs that are basically snapshots at some point in the day in some of their regions to test out as well. And so we've seen that pattern be pretty successful for kind of building this out. I would say on the on the you know, generalizable side or the abstracted side, one of the things that's, that's really crucial here is the mechanics underlying our solver. So Hop is our, our solver. It's our hybrid optimizer. The mechanics underlying that are really based off of state machines. So what you're doing with like your specific input is you're defining your initial state and that state has to represent, you know, your your set of requests and your vehicles in, in the meal delivery case. But it doesn't necessitate having basically there's not a lot of specificity between, you know, Austin versus Denver. I would say the specificity comes in like maybe the travel times and stuff like that. But those you can use a variety of approximations. You could either use like straight line distance scale to some, you know, measure, or you could use map based routes and stuff like that uh, to pass in. It just depends on what you want to do. Cool. So Let's talk a little bit about the engineering. So give me an overview of the architecture. I guess I mean there's there's really two there's two products to to talk about here. One is for is your hop product which is decision modeling and optimization and then you have another product called dash for simulation and experimentation. I guess let, let's actually talk about those two separately and then we can dive into how they're actually constructed. So Decision modeling and optimization. Can you define that problem space first and then and then go into simulation experimentation? Sure. So most of what I've been kind of talking about, I would say in the meal delivery world has been on the optimization side. So when you're thinking about optimization, it is at the purest form generating possibilities of what could happen based on the input data that you provide and picking the best one based on your defined criteria, which we call a value function. And that value function, like I said, can be a combination of whatever your KPIs are, could be a single KPI, it could be total distance traveled for all the drivers across your network, for example, and in our BRP. So that's that's basically like the context of the space around optimization. Optimization is quite a large uh, bucket of things. If you look at you know where optimization is applied, we're only talking about logistics right now. But even within logistics, it's dispatch. So obviously the routing and scheduling or routing and assignment problem we're talking about now. It's workforce scheduling. So how do I pick you know my best blocks for my best people? It's also you know warehouse management. It's even in places around like we talked about market management. There's just like many, many, many ways to to slice and dice how to use optimization. 
but it's a fancy form of search at the end of the day. And what we've kind of constructed or how we've constructed that is we're using an underlying technology called decision diagrams. So there are multiple camps or paradigms of optimization. Decision diagrams is actually relatively new in the academic sense. So in the past, I would say like 10 or so years, a lot of research has been done out of uh, Carnegie Mellon and elsewhere uh, around decision diagrams as a way to solve optimization problems. And so we leveraged uh, that research plus my co-founder's own PhD research to basically build the first commercial decision diagram solver. So that was kind of the first modeling paradigm that, that happened with Hop. And some other ones in the space you know, for, for listeners that are maybe a little more familiar with optimization are like mixed integer programming or constraint programming. These are all different ways to do the same thing, which is just to automate a decision that is complex, essentially, right? Where there's a lot of interdependent decisions that happen in that plan and somehow produce, you know, various results of of KPIs. And I would say classically, you know, optimization really hits the bottom line of every company. So this is like, this is something that is crucial in almost every sector. It's just a matter of like what decision is being driven out of that optimization. And so our tech stack is built uh, entirely in Go. So we actually built our, our solver. So that is that core that I was talking about at the base layer. And everything is entirely built in Go. I kind of made that choice largely for deployment reasons. So we actually you know, have the ability to, to compile these applications or algorithms down to binaries that you can kind of put in some various contexts, whether you're running it uh, locally command line, or that you're running it in you know, web app, whether you're running it um, in serverless, there's a lot of different ways to kind of deploy these binaries. And it also gets to the component architecture because it's basically like a microservice, right? It has a defined input and output structure. It's easier to manage in your software stacks. It's not kind of scattered across different microservices. Can you give me a little bit more information about how you've selected your, your infrastructure? You know, what... Uh... I guess, programming languages decisions, database decisions, you know, cloud hosting decisions. Just take me through a little bit of how you you frame your thinking for the company. Sure. So a lot of it is around thinking. So I kind of mentioned this like decision stack. The way we've thought about, so our cloud product is relatively new. Uh, initially, when we started the company, we were thinking our, of ourselves more as like a library of tools for, for our users, more so than a hosted product. And I would say over the last year or so, we've we've realized that from a developer tooling perspective, it would be great to have a hosted solution. And so we've really thought about this in the sense that our cloud is an instance, basically, of our decision stack. And the way we think about that is our decision stack involves a deployment mechanism. And so that, like I said, that deployment mechanism can be a variety of things for our uh, cloud infrastructure right now, I think we're, we're using uh, Lambda in the, in the back end, some like Lambda step functions, stuff like that. And so like that is just like one particular formulation of, of using that. But you could also do it in a, in a variety of different ways, uh, different cloud providers, different you know, aspects of that, whatever. We really wanted to target smaller you know, services on the, on the cloud side. And the reason for that is typically optimization has been this thing I would say used by more legacy industries because of the compute resources required and also just like the amount of data required. And so I think that this is changing. You know, I think one, just the data handling across like the industry has become a lot better. And also the the introduction of like a lot of like cloud resources and scaling down of their cost, right, has really made this more accessible. And that the same actually goes on the simulation side, because simulation side, I was working at Lockheed Martin and, you know, obviously they're a giant corporation and had a lot of money to spend on private servers, that sort of stuff. 
And so, so we made, you know, some decisions that way around, you know, trying to scale down this technology to be able to run on like on things like serverless. And I think that's really been helpful in keeping us uh, focused on performance from a software perspective. So making that search for the optimization really, really fast and really efficient in terms of picking good solutions and improving solutions over time. Typically with optimization, like operationally, you don't really care about the mathematically optimal, like Yes, mathematical optimal is great if you can get there, but uh, a lot of times operators are okay with like a 5% within optimal solution if it gets back to them in like 10 seconds or something like that for a really complicated problem. And so we've kind of we've kind of gone more down that path uh, with the, the software architecture. And then I know you touched on like databases and stuff like that. We haven't really had the need to go down that path super heavily yet. And I would say that is something that we're basically leaning heavily into like the, the AWS stack for our own personal instance of our decision stack. But we have a lot of, most of our users right now are actually self-hosted. So they view us basically as a collection of tools that they can use in a self-hosted capacity and, and build out their, their algorithms that way. Does that answer your question? It does. Give me a sense of how compute intensive this kind of modeling is. Like, you know, if I've got a bunch of different permutations I could potentially run to determine the the optimal decision science across my company, it seems like that could be quite compute intensive. Correct me if I'm wrong. Am, am, I, am I wrong about that? No, you're not. In terms of like actual number of solutions or like I would say, you know, pieces of that tree that you're exploring, like that can be anywhere in the thousands to millions, right, of like of nodes in your search tree that you're, you're, you know, trying to explore really quickly. And so we've come up with, uh, I would say, like strategies for searching that space. And so, you know, different ways to manage it. I, we think about like that tree as like a really large diagram. So there's ways that you can search portions of it really quickly or dive to feasible solutions and then kind of work your way from there. And so there's a lot of like optimization, I would say paradigms or like optimization strategies to, to manage that space really efficiently. And that kind of gets into the why we chose, you know, decision diagram structure as like as our optimization paradigm more, more generally. And I would say from like a compute resource perspective, you know, the fact that you can run this like on on Lambda means like, you know, it's it's actually pretty, pretty sharp on that front. Like we're running like thousands of deliveries through a, a, like Lambda functions, essentially that have a, a cap out at, you know, whatever, 15 minutes. So they're, they're from that perspective, they're like, they're able to run pretty, pretty efficiently there. And a lot of our, a lot of our users in the real time realm are getting, you know, results back in seconds or milliseconds, right? And like, that's required for, for the type of planning that they're doing. So it really is very problem size dependent, as well as like complexity of the model itself. So how many constraints are you considering? How many, you know, different combinations, like all that kind of stuff. And some of these things are, you know, operationally limited and some of them you you kind of introduce as, as ways to make the problem like a little bit easier. In the optimization community, that's called like, like relaxation of problems so that you can find good feasible solutions quickly. How do you make it reliable that the model reflects the real world? What I mean by that is like, is there a workflow where these companies, like a potential customer like a you know GoPuff or Rappi, some of your customers, where they they've got their test data, they've got their decision inputs, they do their modeling, they change how they run their business based on the model, but then they would want to verify that their the the suppositions of their model 
are correct, right? They would want to have some workflow that kind of they can verify that things are going as planned, and then if it's not, they want to iterate on it. Can you take me through the kind of life cycle of iteration that a company would use with this kind of modeling technique? Sure. That kind of gets into the space around experimentation, so I'll touch a little bit on, on simulation as, as we go here. But essentially, what that life cycle looks like is uh, typically when you're kind of building, I would say, decision automation into your company, it goes through a variety of phases. First things first is usually like some sort of manual uh, version of that. And we, we were part of YC to, to do things that don't scale like that. That's pretty common. Like if you're doing some operational problem, you're going to do the manual version first. Typically, what you see in a company after that is they go into this realm where they say, hey, I want to automate that decision. That's usually when you'll either do one of two things, either build out some business rules as like a heuristic and just use that as part of your decision framework or, you know, get into the space around around optimization, which is what we're, we've been talking about thus far. And so that would be the how you you know automate that that singular decision. After that, you kind of start stepping up into what I call like the experimentation realm. So one is you can use simulation. So simulation basically adds some randomness <laughs> into the execution of that plan. So you may have your you know your decision uh, model or, or algorithm decide on the plan for you, and maybe that says me, Carolyn, I'm going to run to XYZ locations, and I expect to be there. Um, The output from my model says I expect to be there in 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, etc. But then when you run it through simulation, you add some noise to my travel time, right? Because nothing in the real world actually happens in the way that you would make a plan. And so my ETA to that, you know, first or my my actual arrival time to that first location um, in the sim world might be eight minutes and the other one's 12 and the other one's you know, whatever, 34. So that allows you basically to understand kind of how sensitive your decision automation is to kind of real world events and shift in that plan. And so you can run simulation kind of uh, out for, you know, maybe multiple hours or multiple days and kind of see how things back up in your system, right? Because at the end of the day, a lot of these logistics systems are basically built off of queues of some sort, right? Queues of orders coming in or queues of packages that have to be packed, stuff like that. And so that's like one layer, I would say, of testing. Even before people get to, I would say, the simulated layer of testing, they typically are running like an instance versus instance. (laughs) So like if you think about, hey, I took my state of the world at 5 p.m. on a Friday, which is probably one of the the most order, the highest, or sorry, highest number of order times, right, for a lot of meal delivery services, right? If I take like that 5 p.m. on a Friday time slice, I can run it through my current algorithm and I can run it through my new algorithm and I can say, okay, what is the difference in my value function? Because typically I'm trying to capture the same value function, whether it's total distance, total time, lateness for ETA, stuff like that. And I can compare those two values. And so that's like a first pass, I would say, at like at looking at acceptance for like a new model. And then the second pass would be simulation. And simulation really just allows you to narrow the field and what you're going to go test live. So it should be able to give you directional information like this is probably better than than this other algorithm. So you should go test it uh, real world. And then when you step down into the real world context, you might do what we call switchback testing. So for certain slices of time, have one algorithm live versus another. You can't do traditional A-B testing in the sense that you can't split your you know, driver pool in you know, meal delivery world or in like rideshare world because then you're fundamentally not getting an optimal solution by not considering the whole pool together in one planning session. And so that's kind of typically what you would see in terms of experimentation. You would kind of step through these different phases um, and have some you know, acceptance criteria uh, throughout. 
And then on the end of it, <laughs> you're looking at basically what are what is the actual result and compare back to, to your model. And a lot of these providers, you know, think about travel time. I would say that's that's a definitely a source of error in a lot of models that you typically have to, you know, make some judgment calls on, right? Because you can't be querying you know, Google Maps for every single possible, you know, connection in every single possible part of your plan as you go through an optimization. So typically you'll see either passing in different uh, travel time matrices, and those are dependent on a certain time of day from like any travel provider, travel time provider, whether it's OSRM or I think one of them is Valhalla, Graphhopper, there's quite a few out there. But that's one thing you could do, or you could also build a regression model based on your observations of travel time data, because a lot of these services are observing all their drivers moving around all the time. So they can kind of incorporate their own data science models into the input for optimization. So that's that's kind of the nice way, like decision science is kind of this, you know, missing link between uh, data science, which is all about like, you know, the prediction of what's going to happen. And then the operations is like, okay, what do I actually do about it? And in the middle, there is decision science, which gives you a set of actions that thinks is going to give you the best outcome. How generalizable is the technology that you've built? Like, you know, I think we, we've mostly been talking about this in terms of logistics and kind of these these real world decision science problems. But on your website, you also have the you have suggestions that it could be used for scheduling jobs in the cloud, building marketing engines. You know, marketing engines have have all these different um, flows to them. Like you want you want to target a person with an ad on one platform, then you target them on another platform. Take me through like the how how generalizable this is and and how you how you're planning to approach these different markets. Sure. So, like I said, with like the the you know the core technology there, right, is based on like state machine mechanics, which are I would say not specific to any field, right. And you look at something like maybe a marketing engine, for example, that might be looking at, hey, you know, what are my different channels that I can go, you know, make marketing decisions in and, and, uh, and allocate resources to, whether that be like, you know, funds, something like that. And you would typically have uh, data science models that say, I expect a certain ROI on, you know, that particular channel. And so what you might do is that across all of your different users and all your different channels, you make a an optimization decision that says like, you know, find the best resultant ROI, given that I have to allocate a, a finite amount of resources or dollars right to those different channels. And so that would be another example of like an optimization engine or application that you can build within uh, your company. And so that that's kind of interesting. Another one that's kind of interesting is, um, you know, if kind of looking at the the workforce scheduling, workforce scheduling, you know, yeah, we talked about it for, for meal delivery logistics, but it's actually quite common. Um, this, this scheduling paradigm goes into healthcare, right? On, you know, scheduling different providers for different blocks and patients coming in. It also applies to obviously like e-commerce, retail, et cetera. So they kind of go into those different areas. The way we've been thinking about our platform is very much a horizontal play on, you know, giving optimization as part of your toolkit for developers and then building applications on top of our core that makes sense for certain industries. Because I think one of the hard things about optimization is it is so abstracted and you've kind of touched on this a few times where it's like, you know, but is it, is it possible to be that abstracted and, and to really be relevant? And I think like that gets into the having specific schemas and applications uh, that we can launch in our cloud service to give people an understanding about how they can use us, right? And so whether it's that marketing application or whether it's the meal delivery application that we've been talking about most of the time, right? 
those are have a specific data structure, have a specific output and have like a very tangible decision point, right? I need to like assign drivers. I need to allocate uh, dollars to my, you know, marketing channels. I need to, you know, pick my schedules for, for my, my healthcare workers, right? Like those are very defined outputs. And so I think like that's one of the ways that, that we're looking at addressing different pieces of this market is kind of giving these applications as use as is or customized as needed, right? And so um, that just gives people a sense for what they can use it for. Who are the teams that are responsible for using decision science software within an organization? So they it kind of depends on the maturity of the company or even just the style of the company, I would say. So we we have a couple different, we have two different types of users, I would say. We have our, our typical software engineer user. That's the one that we've, I would say, primarily targeted with our tool set thus far. And the reasons for that is a lot of the optimization space hasn't really been that sharp on integration patterns. And so we've really tried to, to make a pretty big difference there and also on testing, like I was talking about with the CI testing and, and also like unit tests, that sort of thing. And then we also have data science users. And so data science users are, uh, I would say, the classic consumers of optimization technology. Typically, they will be operations researchers, not just data scientists. So just a little bit of a qualifying factor, because I know there's a lot of different you know, types that fall into that data science uh, title. But these operations researchers are typically like master students or PhD students that, that uh, went through operations research training, and they're out there looking for, you know, how to solve these complex problems um, in industry, and they will usually use a, a solver off the shelf. Um, and the reason for that is a lot of times you're doing so much work to define what the problem is for your specific use case that building the solver itself is not really time well spent, <laughs> quite frankly. It's a it's a complicated technology. It's kind of similar to like Elasticsearch. Like you wouldn't go on, off and build Elasticsearch instead of just using it because it's complicated enough technology and it's not really specific to your business. You just want to utilize it as a, as a tool set to, to solve your problem. How do you see this domain evolving over time? I guess take me inside your, your product strategy and just how you see the industry evolving to have more requirements for this kind of software. Yeah, I think one thing that's been really interesting is that you've seen, or at least we've seen more and more of the like systems thinking, operations researchers, data science be part of, you know, the general software company, right? And like, and I think that's because of a couple things. One, data proliferation, right? There's data out there for almost every aspect of your business, whether it's you're getting like IoT signals, whether it's you're just getting, you know, better data as, you know, your users go through your funnel, stuff like that. And I think that there's a lot left on the table for optimizing those flows from an operations perspective. And so I think because you have access to that data, because there's more of this kind of like systems thinking around, hey, I have a marketplace and I have like two to three to four sided marketplaces now that all have these really like competing interests, right, on every side of that marketplace. And how do you really balance all those factors so that you, you know, the company that's facilitating this marketplace get the best benefit? And so I think this space has kind of grown out of the fact that a lot of businesses today are not really transactional anymore. There's a lot more factors at play and there are factors at play that have data associated with them now that wasn't exposed because you couldn't store all of it or because, you know, you just couldn't see it visibility perspective. So like the digitization, I think, is, is really driving a lot of this change. 
And I would say the second thing that's driving it is um, is just around like uh, data, like this gap between uh, data science and operations as it exists today, right? Like you have a data scientist doing like amazing work on like you know predictive modeling and understanding LTV and understanding um, you know all these things for for various businesses. But at the end of the day, how much of that is actually crossing the bridge into the real-time operations or the you know tactical operations of a company on a day-over-day basis, right? And so I think you know the space around decision science is really taking action on all those rich predictions, all that rich data, and giving you you know the best solution in the time you have for the time you have to make these decisions. And then you know obviously the monitoring and and what have you that comes out of that is is part of that that story as well. What are the biggest technical challenges that you're working on right now? Yeah, there are a couple. One of them is is I would say because we have these two users, right? We have our our software engineer user and our, you know, ops researcher user who's typically like that masters or PhD. I think, you know, one of the challenges that that we have is is usability from from both ends, right? I would say understanding. So we, when we've talked about building that app layer, it's just a, a knowledge thing. Like we are out here, we're helping solve these problems. And you can take us off the shelf and use us for for that software engineer. Um, and so from that perspective, I think it's a, a visibility thing on the technical side, right? And just making it so that there's enough uh, rich content around around what we're doing and uh, specificity in our applications uh, to, to get people to understand like the, the application. And then I think on the other side of the house, on like the the you know more PhD user side of the house, one of the challenges is as is scaling, right? Scaling of, of these problems as we get bigger and bigger using being able to run the problems in, in things like serverless, um, being able to like parallelize like different parts of search, being able to use different paradigms. You know, we are adding heuristic paradigms to our, our optimization core. And so as we go with that, um, obviously like, you know, thinking through how to use both uh, our current decision diagrams and like a, a you know, meta heuristics and another optimization framework like constraint programming, how do you make those look and feel the same from like a, an ergonomics like usability perspective? And I think that's like a really interesting technical challenge for us. I would love to know more about your perspective on the on-demand and like logistics heavy economy in general, since you've, you've spent significant time in it and, and many of your customers are in that, in that space you know we're we're at a point where you have so many different players that you that offer faster and faster delivery for all kinds of all kinds of items and things are just becoming easier and easier is there something that happens next is there like a next phase of what e-commerce and logistics and the on-demand economy offers do you have any vision into what kind of the the state of the art is is going to unlock yeah, I mean, I think there's there's a couple interesting trends going on there, right? You see a lot more now like shared fleet situations or like or white labeled fleet situations. You know, I've seen from you know just my own usage of of these kind of applications, right? Like, um, I've seen basically like DoorDash, I think is like is like white labeling a lot of their their fleet usage across like different restaurants and allowing them to kind of control the user interaction, which I think is like, is really interesting. And typically like a lot of these players um, have kind of started out as e-commerce marketplaces really at the end of the day. And then they've like, you know, tacked on fulfillment as like part of their service set. And so I think like there will be an interesting 
there's definitely some interesting things like, you know, happening in that space, especially given the pandemic, honestly, like there's been a lot more reliance from like a restaurant perspective um, in this space on delivery, because they just like can't have the same amount of volume that they used to have, you know, in their in their restaurants, uh, uh, like real time. So I think that that will start to shift a little bit, like kind of like ownership of data is something that like, I'm super curious how that that grows and, and develops over time and kind of like who owns the customer kind of at the end of the day. I'm also I'm also interested to see kind of how these like shared fleets and um, and even how people start to use autonomy um, in this space because you know a lot of I think there's been a misconception that that you have like un- unlimited elasticity in your your supply of drivers. Um, I think what we've seen is that like gig economy workers like there's a lot of competition for them now, right? Whether it's you know e-commerce delivery, whether it's uh, meal delivery, whether it's you know, CPG delivery, whether it's rideshare, right, like Lyft, Uber, etc. I think we're all kind of seeing that you're, you're accessing, uh, obviously, like a section of workers that is interested in, in like ad hoc work, which is awesome. But I don't think they're unlimited. And so I think what you're what you're seeing now, uh, with like, extended fleets and partnerships on that side, and also, you know, like different ways or whatever to like use autonomy is that like ways to extend your fleet and have like more consistency in the supply level that you have, right? So how do you start to to see like uh, benefits on that side? So I think that's going to be something that's kind of interesting. And also just from my, my Lockheed Martin background is, is kind of interesting to me for a variety of reasons. So like, so that's kind of cool. And then I think, think another thing that's going to be, I think the industry in general has been driving towards faster and faster and faster delivery times. I do wonder if that will change or develop into more like what the expectation is of a user, because I think sometimes like, or at least I know personally, like there are times when I'm you know ordering food where I don't really care when it comes. Right. And like, I might, you know, I might pay a little bit less like to have it come later or what have you. And there are times where I'm like, no, I like, I really need to like eat between X, Y, Z hours. So I think there's like, there's some consideration of like that too. Like, how do you, how do you better serve users and, also gain as much efficiency into your, you know, your logistics operation as you can. And so I think those are two kind of interesting things. And yeah, I think the restaurant one is like, is it's definitely concerning, like how, like, you know, I would say like individual restaurants, I don't know how much they can like really afford staying in the current paradigm, especially as in-person dining, like really isn't coming back as, as quickly as anticipated. And as those those kinds of companies evolve since you're already offering you know the the these kinds of modeling and experimentation solutions to them and given that you've been inside of these companies or you've been inside of Grubhub at least are there any other kinds of of applications that that you think they have like a dire need for I mean, honestly, I would say like, they're all, you know, working on on these problems today, I would say it's just like, uh, a lot of it is like the way it integrates with their business, like speed to iterations, like ease, ease of experimentation, like that sort of stuff is really, at the end of the day, for like one of these large providers, part of the value proposition here. And like, the other thing is this makes a little bit more consistent, right? I think like one one of the things that's interesting about a Grubhub or an Uber or Lyft or whatever is they're probably using different technology, you know, across all these different decision automations. And so there is a little bit of an aspect to resources being able to shift easily throughout your company and kind of use the same stack for decisions. So that's something that we've been we've been thinking a lot about, whether it's like your 
standard operating procedure for a very like simple workflow to this routing decision that's really complicated. Wouldn't it be nice if they all look and feel the same, the same way you use like, you know, Java for your whole stack or, or what have you. And, you know, I think like that's like a really interesting thing that is more on like the, the resource and innovation side of the house than it is like for this specific model, like how do I compare? It's like more, more of like a force multiplier, I think, for the organization as a whole. Tell me a little bit about your personal experience running the company thus far. What has been the most challenging and what has been easier than you expected? Cool. That's an interesting question. I think one of the things that has been, I don't know if it was easier than expected or, or kind of like somewhat expected, but we we ran a lot of the Grubhub team remotely. So both Ryan and myself, my co-founder and I uh, ran that team and we got up to about like maybe like 40 or so people uh, running completely remote and and he and I were not, not in an office um, at the time. And so I think like one of the nice things that we were kind of prepared for this like pandemic environment that way, we had also intended to build our company distributed. And I would say that that's been working out better even than I expected. You know, I thought I thought we did a, a lot of things, a lot of fun things like with our, our team at, at, uh, at Grubhub, like in the remote aspect, but we're completely distributed on this go around. Like there's nobody that is actually in an office, you know, for the Grubhub sense, we had a couple of people in Chicago and a couple of people in New York, that sort of thing. And then everybody else was kind of at their home home base. But I've been like pleasantly surprised that like we're working right now, we're working across, I think, four or five time zones, including Germany and uh, Colombia. And we have have, you know, just uh, I would say a really high level of engagement and, you know, just a lot of like fun with the company, even though we haven't been able to meet in person. And so I think that that's been really interesting. And on, on the flip side of that, like I, I wish we could have met, met in person already. I think that's been like one of the challenges is that we just haven't had FaceTime, literally, like I haven't met half of our team in person, which is kind of crazy. And uh, that has its own challenges, right? I think like just, you know, we've made a lot of strides. I have like, I feel a sense of connection with every single employee that we have at Next Move, And I think that's awesome. But how much stronger would, th- would those bonds be if like we, you know, we're able to have our quarterly offsites like we planned, you know, I think like that, that aspect could be could be a lot, a lot easier. I think like one of the other challenges that I'm starting to get in here into and now is like just like not knowing what we don't know in terms of like community building and like that sort of stuff like the external like community building I think is uh, is an area of, of interest for me that we've been doing a lot of research in lately. And that's just I would say it's not not a negative, but it's just challenging. Right? That's uh, I think one of the things about a business that I've spent a lot of time in analysis and, and engineering and now like, you know, thinking about all aspects of the business, right? So it's, uh, it's fundraising and it's, you know, runway management and it's budgeting and hiring and also like go to market strategy, like all, all the things. So that's been fun, but challenging. And we've really leaned on a lot of our investors in that capacity. Like we, we were fortunate enough to have amazing investors in our seed round. We had first mark follow on and, and lead our, our A. And they've just all been like super, super helpful. And we've even brought on a bunch of like, you know, founders and execs from from companies like, you know, GitHub and, and Twilio and stuff like that. So they've all been just very, very helpful. And I really think about our investors as like our strategy team, like, you know, helping us think through things that we don't know, right? And we kind of specifically picked investors, advisors, etc. as subject matter experts in areas, hopefully that we didn't have as strong of, of ties to. So that's been really helpful. You mentioned before the impact of the pandemic on your business and software companies in general, any other unexpected ways in which the pandemic has affected business and, and maybe 
uh, anticipations of of long range impacts there. Yeah, I think uh, one of the interesting things for us is that you know we we thought about our go to market in the logistics category, just given one the application of optimization there, and two our backgrounds, you know, having some some cloud in that area. And when the pandemic happened, you know, I think everyone was kind of like, okay, well, what the hell is going to happen to my go to market, and you know, what's going to happen to my customer base. And what happened in our customer base was that their services just exploded with growth. So if anything, our customer base kind of felt the pain and need of this technology even more so than normal because they're not only were they growing rapidly, and so fundamentally the way they thought about their optimization was changing, or the way they thought about you know, automating their systems was changing, but their operations also changed significantly, right? So like there were new rules that had to be abided by because of the pandemic and there are like, you know, changes in their operations along the way that honestly, now that we're a year plus in, I think might hold. <laughs> and so, you know, they've had to think through ways to to incorporate those changes into their their automation and iterate on their models and like all this stuff. So, so in a weird way, I think pandemic actually accelerated our growth and, you know, I think that was, you know, part of the reason that that we that we got interest from like, you know, seed to series A was only about like six or seven months for us. So like the part of that is just like the the acceleration there. And the other part of that is is really the democratization play. So I think just more and more people are realizing that they need to to manage these kind of systems that way. And and it's just highlighting like it's highlighting how fragile things can be if you build them off of like just a very clear cut, like set of set of rules. I mean, you don't consider a lot of options. Like you saw the, the logistics industry in general was like really taxed, especially at the beginning of, of the pandemic. And so it was challenging a lot of like old assumptions and old models and old technology that was being used. And so in that way, it's been like a really ripe time for us to, to step into the market. Cool. Well, that sounds like a good place to close off. Carolyn, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, I appreciate your time, Jeff.